Uh, if you're just joining us, we have been going through a series where we've been looking at uh, Jesus, Jesus' healings. And I think it's, it's one of the things that Jesus is known for. We say that's not, the, that's not the main drive of his ministry was not to heal, right? I think that he healed to fulfill prophecy. He healed because that's what he does. That's not the reason why he came. I think it's very clear in the scriptures that he came so that he could die on the cross for our sins and to then conquer the grave. That's why he came. But while he was here, he healed people. But it's one of the things that he's really known for is, is, is his healings. And I think for a, a lot of reasons. I think one of the reasons why is because we, we sense that we need healing. And so when we read a story that somebody's sick and then we have a friend who is sick or we're sick or we're going through an unknown medical condition. We know that God is the healer. And so we, we love those stories. We, we latch on to those stories. We latch on to the stories because we need a healer. We latch on the stories because they're miraculous. And we love miraculous stories. We love stories that start off one way and then take a dramatic turn and go a new way. We love that. And we love that because he's the God that we serve. It's interesting as we look at Jesus as a healer is that one of the things that we see today is that this, we need him more desperately now than possibly ever. Because there's this thing, right, we need Jesus to heal us individually. There's things that are broken within us individually. There are things that are relationally broken, things that are physically broken, things that are physically breaking down. And we go, we need Jesus as the healer, the restorer. But also, I think community-wise, culturally-wise, country-wise, worldwide. So, so in a way, we need Jesus as the healer individually. But in another way, we also need Jesus as the healer corporately, as humanity. I think we could all look at the world today, no matter how you fall down, and go, this place is broken. And it's getting, seems to be, even more <laughs> brokener-er-er. Like, nobody, I don't think, for the most part, we don't think this is this is, this is we're, we're healing. I think there's this deep sense that we, we are in need of a healer. And the good news is we have a healer. We have a healer. And the healer won't be found in a policy. The healer won't be found in a law. The healing won't be found in a candidate. But the healing will be found in an identity of Jesus. And so that's why we've been going through this series and looking at these things. So today we're going to take you to a place, this morning we're going to look at a place where it's not popular to go when we talk about the healing of Jesus, but is uh, most definitely a healing story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 21. We're going to look at uh, one of the last interactions with Jesus and the disciples. So this is John chapter 21. We're going to go through most of the chapter this morning, so we've got a lot to cover. John chapter 1, chapter 21, verse 1. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And so this is after the resurrection. Jesus has already been crucified. The resurrection has happened. He's appeared in Jerusalem. And then he's appeared in Jerusalem. And now the disciples are where? Where does it tell us they are? They're in the Galilee. You go, what are they doing in the Galilee? How do we go from Jerusalem, cut scene to the Galilee? And by the way, it's going to go cut scene back to Jerusalem. Why would they go up to the Galilee? And you go, well, there's, there's one reason they'd go up to the Galilee. 
Jesus told them, go up to the Galilee. When he's talking about his death, as he's preparing them, the night that he's to be betrayed, he tells them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And when I rise again, I want you to meet me in the Galilee. Then Jesus is crucified, like he said. Then he rises from the dead, like he said. Three of the women, they go to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body on that Sunday. And guess what? The tomb is empty. And they're thinking, what have you done with the body? But there's an angel there. You know what the angel says? The angel says, don't be afraid. Do you know what else the angel says to this, these women? Angels says, the angel says to the women, go tell Peter what you have seen. And go tell Peter and the disciples that Jesus is going before them, where? To the Galilee. So it's interesting. So Jesus says, I'm going to die, rise again. But when all that happens, it's going to get a little crazy. Meet me in the Galilee. It's kind of like when uh, you're, maybe you're going to a concert or a, like, a, like a place like Disneyland or a part where you go, it's going to get a little crazy. If we get, all get lost, meet back right here, all right? So things are going to happen. We might go our separate ways, but we, we need to meet back here. And so that's what Jesus says. And after the resurrection happens, there's been this whirlwind of events. What does the angel say? Don't forget what Jesus said. Meet me in the Galilee. Go up to the Galilee. And so they do that. Why are they in the Galilee? They're in the Galilee because they're obedient disciples. And so here they are, and then Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, actually, sometimes this has been understood that, that what Peter is doing is he's reverting back to his old life because he was a fisherman. And so now he's, he's reverting back to his old life. He's, and in other words, like him going fishing is a sign of, of unbelief or, or returning to his old ways. But I don't think that's what's happening. All Jesus said was, go to the Galilee. And that was it. And often it's interesting because that's what God does for us, doesn't he? He just, he just gives us the next step. Go to the Galilee. What do you want me to do when I get there, God? Well, I want you to go to the Galilee. Yeah, but when I get there, what do you want me to do? How about we work with obedience with the first step first? And so they go to the Galilee. And I think, I think what happens here is they're at the Galilee and they, they don't know what's going to happen next. They're just like, well, we're, we're here. Like, often this is how I feel. Like, I don't know, I'm here. I'm obedient. I don't know what's going to happen next. And so I think that Peter does what Peter knows how to do, which is fish. I don't think it's a sign of disobedience or unbelief. I think it's just like, or even re he's reverting back to his old ways. I think it's just Peter going like, I don't know, we're here. And God isn't, like, Jesus hasn't shown up yet, so I'm just going to do what I know how to do, which I think actually is something brilliant in that, right? Because I think often people think that waiting on the Lord means that we are, we are immobile or we just sit there and twiddle our thumbs until God answers a prayer. But that's not how it goes. Often I think waiting on the Lord means just kind of do what you do. Do what you know how to do. Be obedient to God. Do what you know how to do. And then you wait for God to show up. And sometimes waiting on the Lord means you go fishing. Now, you fishermen, you're excited about that, aren't you? Like, did you hear that? Josh said, fishing, waiting on the Lord. <laughs> Next Saturday morning, you're gonna, your wife's going to ask you, 
You going fishing? No. I'm going to wait on the Lord. Out on the lake with a rod. See what the Lord does. You're welcome. So Peter goes fishing. The others say, we're going to join him. They didn't catch a thing all night. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And this is written like a a rhetorical question. The the implied answer is no. So it could be even better like, uh, children, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but they were about a hundred yards off. And so they hadn't caught anything all night. And this, this guy shows up on the shore and calls out to him, Hey, haven't caught anything, have you? No. Try throwing the net on the right side of the boat. Like we've been out here all night. I don't think we hadn't thought of that. They throw it out on the right side of the boat. And the load is more than they can carry. It's so heavy, they can't, they can't bring it in. And the disciple whom Jesus loves, which we understand to be John, the author of this book, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter, hearing that, throws on his clothes, which is funny because typically you don't throw on clothes to go swimming, but he throws on his clothes, jumps in to swim ashore. And at this point, for some of you, this story may sound oddly familiar. It's like one of those things I've, I've, been, I've, I've heard this story somewhere before in a different context. You have, maybe. I'm going to take you back to the place in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is calling the disciples. And keep your hand in, in 21 because we're going to come back there, obviously. But this is chapter 5, verse 1 of Luke. And on one occasion, with the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, referring to Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also this, this, this lake, the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, same thing. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down your nets. In other words, since you said, fine, we've been out here all night long. We caught nothing. But hey, since, you know, kind of to appease you, I'll do it. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boat, 
both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And also uh, were James and John, sons of Zebedee, sounding familiar, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so Jesus, what he does is he takes them back to the place. Jesus says, I'm going to take you up to the Galilee to teach you an object lesson. And context matters. It's interesting because surely Jesus could have done this right from Jerusalem. He could have sat down in a circle and said, hey, guys, remember that time? Remember that time when I called you? Remember that time when I, I came to you? And I said, to, you know, throw out your net and there's a fish. You couldn't, there's a provision. You were out all night. Remember that. And remember what I said. I said, follow me. And remember what I said. I said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Remember that? Now, Jesus could have done that from Jerusalem, but he didn't. What does he say? Go to the Galilee. And from everything I can gather, this is the reason why he has brought them to the Galilee. Because they're going to come up to the Galilee, have this experience, and then they're going to go back to Jerusalem. And so it's interesting that Jesus understands the power of time and place. I think about maybe like an older couple that drives by their first house, their first apartment, and they park outside, awkwardly so to the new owners, and they begin to reminisce. Remember when we moved into this house? Remember, we, that was the room we raised our kids in. Remember, that was the tree they used to climb. And you start thinking about, even if you, if you sit there long enough, you start to even to reminisce about what your thoughts were at that time. What you thought life would be like. Remember what we thought life would be like in this moment? And you start reminiscing like things that you didn't even know were going to come that, that awaited the people that you're looking back on in that moment. Some victories that they didn't know that you they didn't know about that were coming their way. Some disappointments that they didn't know about that were coming their way, and you start reflecting on them. It's a way of taking you back to this journey. And I think that Jesus does this. So I'm taking you back to remind you, I'm taking you back to where we came from to remind you of where you are and where you're going. And so it's not only just that. That'd be one thing, right? Where Jesus were to teach them on the shore. That would be powerful enough. But he doesn't even do that. In this story here, he recreates the story. And I, and I think largely because, and so he recreates the story when they say, you haven't caught anything, have you? No. Put your nets out on the right side. They do. They haul it, and as soon as there's this huge catch, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, right, John says, it's the Lord. And I love that. You know why? 
Because here we see this is a connection between the work of God and the identity of God. How do we know that it's him? By his voice? Didn't seem to be by his voice. How do we know that it was him? By the way he looked? Didn't seem to be by the way he looked. They both saw him and heard him. How do we know that it was him in this, in this story? By his work. We throw the note over. We catch the fish. <gasps> it's the Lord. There's this bit of rivalry that runs between John and Peter throughout the book of Joel, well, throughout their lives. John brings it up in his gospel. You see it in multiple places. One of the places that's probably most, most, most obvious is in, uh, in John chapter 20, where the women have come back and said, the Lord has risen. And so John and Peter are going to go to the grave. And it's very, very clear. John makes it absolutely clear that they started out at the same time. But that John outran Peter. I mean, I am not making this up. You can read John chapter 20. It says that John outran Peter and got to the tomb first. But that Peter was actually the first one to go into the tomb. You know, like little children. We're going to race to the house. I got to the house first. No, it was, it was to the door. I got to the door first. Your job was to get to the door. But I got to the, I got to the sidewalk first. No, but it was to the door. John, I got to the tomb first. Peter, I was the first one in. And we see the exact same thing here. Sure, John didn't jump in and swim to the shore. But the only reason Peter jumped in and swam to the shore because John was the one that identified him. It's him. Peter jumps in puts his clothes on, jumps in, swims to the shore. John, I identified him though. I didn't swim because I'm not crazy. But I'm the one that saw him first and knew it first. Verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. The fish laid out on it. And bread And Jesus said to them, bring some fish, some of the fish that you have caught, just caught. So Simon Peter uh, went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Remember what happened back in Luke chapter 5? The net was torn. This time there were so many, but the net didn't tear. Everything's the same, but everything's changed. Jesus said to them, come have and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They were out trying to catch breakfast. And Jesus was on the shore preparing them breakfast. I think that there's something here that Jesus is doing. I think he's also reminding them of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, right? There is bread. We come ashore. And what we were short of, which was food, we come ashore and the food has already been provided for us. Where did he get that bread and fish from? It's already prepared. I think what Jesus is doing here is because everything's changed. Everything has changed. The resurrection changes everything. But at the same time, a lot of things are the same. And I think this is one of the things he's reminding them here. Even after the resurrection, 
although everything has changed, some things haven't. After the resurrection, it is still God that is the one who calls. Children, what have you caught? After the resurrection, God is still the one who serves. Come and have breakfast. I've prepared it for you. After the resurrection, God is still with them. After the resurrection, God is still the one who provides. This was true, by the way, kids, at the beginning. And little children, that's true right now. And little children, this is going to be true as you go forward. This is what he's telling the disciples. It was true back there, it's true now, and it's true as you go forward. I call, I provide, I serve. That's what I do. That's not going to change. And so there they are. They couldn't believe it. And I I love that statement. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. The implication here is that they they were sure, but not so sure. It's all this idea is like, yeah, it's, it's definitely him. It's definitely him. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. It's definitely him. But why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask him? I'm not asking if it's him, because I know it's him. Well, then you don't have to ask him. You have to ask him? No, I know for sure. And so this idea is like, we, yeah, we, we, we know. We know. And as it goes on, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. You know, there was a breaking of a relationship between Jesus and Peter. There's a couple of occasions where where Peter, where Jesus says, uh, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, don't talk like that. You keep your mouth quiet, Jesus. Don't say things like that. And then, the night he's going to be betrayed and crucified, he says, again, I'm going to die. And Peter says, I will follow you. And Jesus says, you can't follow me. I'm going to die. And Peter says, I don't care if I have to die with you. I'm not going to abandon you, Jesus. These other guys, quite possibly... Me? No. No, 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 no. Thomas? There's a good chance. Judas? Oh, yeah, we know. Me? No. I love you too much, Jesus. Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're going to deny me three times tonight. Three times. Not in a month, not in a year. Tonight, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
And the Gospels accurately account this denial. Aren't you with Jesus? Who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw you with Jesus. Now, I think, I think it was my doppelganger that you saw or something because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't me. I saw you with Jesus. It wasn't me. Rooster crows. Peter's grieved. You know, we love it when God's word comes true most of the time. There's other times when God's word comes true and it grieves us. This is a time when God's word comes true and it grieves Peter. Because what God said was true turned out to be true. Which with Peter, I think you feel a level of guilt, especially when you watch Jesus die. You're like, I I said that I would be with him, and then he's dead, and you go, but I said that I would be with him. I should be in that tomb, too. So there's this sense of guilt that happens when Jesus dies. I think with Peter, it's a different kind of guilt and a bit of fear when Jesus rises from the dead. Because like, it's like, oh no, he's back. And last conversation we kind of had, I was like, no way, no way, I'm with you, I'm all in. And then and he said no, and then I denied, and now he's back. What are we going to do with this? And as far as we know, they haven't talked about it. This happens in relationships all the time, does it not? There's conflict. You do something, you know that's going to make somebody else either disappointed or mad. And then you find out that they found out about it. And then you think to yourself, oh no. Now they know. And what's crazy is that they know that I know. And they know that I know that they know. And so it creates this awkwardness, does it not? And the question comes up with, how is it going to be dealt with? When I see them, are they going to bring it up? Are they going to say anything? Because a lot of times, if if you're the offender, what you think is, I'm not bringing it up. Like, if they want to bring it up, they can bring it up, but maybe they weren't that offended after all. And so we'll just let it go. And a lot of times we think by avoiding the awkwardness that there will be healing that will take place. But truth be told is that we need to deal with the offense in order for the awkwardness to be healed, for the relationship to be healed. And so I think this is what Jesus is doing. It's time, Peter, to talk about what happened. Do you love me more than these? Now, this is complicated because we don't get hand motions in the Bible, right? We don't get like, is he saying, do you love me? Do you love me more than you love the disciples? Which I don't think is what he's saying. He could be saying, do you love me more than you love these fish? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Now, what's Jesus doing with that question? You think Jesus is trying to gauge who loves him the most? No, I mean, the whole time, with, you know, they're, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about back there? Oh, we were talking about who's the greatest. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. Well, let me tell you about the greatness in the kingdom of God. There was this competitiveness that was within the disciples. You think here that what Jesus is trying to do is trying to figure out who's out on top? No. Do you love me more than these? I think one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's highlighting to Peter the pride that led to his fall. See, here's the problem, Peter. 
you thought you loved me more than these people loved me. And that pride led to your arrogance. That arrogance led to your fall. So let me ask you, Peter, you love me more than these? Because notice his response. His response is not, yes, I do love you more than these, Jesus. You know that. I think what Peter's doing in his response is he's affirming that he loves Jesus, but Jesus is the one who knows to what level. I think it's, it's the arrogance of Peter before the resurrection, before the death and resurrection, has now been humbled, and now Jesus is addressing this. Do you love me more than these? And he goes, well, Jesus, yes, I love you, and you know that. He asked him the second time. And he says, so feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, I think by the third time, Peter knows what's happening. The first time, he said, yeah, of course I love Jesus. Second time, he's like, well, that's weird that you'd ask me a second time. And then when he's asked the third time, he's like, oh, I see what you did. I see this is where this is going. I denied you three times. And now you ask me three times that you love, do I love you? And so I think what it does here with Peter is it, it brings him back to the moment, go, this is us dealing and, 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 and reconciling and healing the brokenness of our relationship. And so his, his third response is, yes, that I, that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep tend my flock. I love this. Three times denied is met with three times affirmed and then three times commissioned. The three times denied is met with the three times affirmed and then three times commissioned. Now go. Go feed my sheep. Go, go tend to my flock. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Verse 19, this, was, this he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And so in this place, then Jesus says, oh, so feed my sheep. And by the way, when you get older, when you're young, you got to do whatever you wanted to. But when you get older, you're going to be dressed by somebody else and someone else is going to lead your hand. And then specifically, in case we miss that, like, oh, he's just, he's, he's maybe he's, he needs just assistance. Like, no, no, this is about the kind of death that he's going to die. As we, as church history, tradition has it, is that, is that Peter was crucified. And church tradition has it is that he was crucified upside down because he, he did not find it worthy to be die in the same manner that his father, as, as Jesus died. And so here we see something very interesting I think this is like a good news and bad news for, for Peter. I got good news for you, Peter, and I got bad news for you. 
The good news is the thing that you failed at in the past, you are going to succeed at in the future, which is typically good news for us, right? Somebody tells you, hey, something you failed at in the past that you really wanted, in the future, God is going to grant that to you as a success. We would go, amen, hallelujah. I like that. Except for here, the failure was that he would not die with Jesus. And the success is that Jesus says, in the future, you will. The thing you failed at in the past was to follow me to death is the thing that you will succeed at in the end, which is you're going to follow me to death. I called you as a fisherman, follow me. But now I'm going to call you as my disciple to follow me to death. This is part of the redemption and the reconciliation of the relationship between Jesus and Peter. You're going to have another shot, Peter. And with the other shot, just like I predicted you were going to fail the first time, with this other shot that you're going to get, you're going to succeed. For me, I go, I got all sorts of questions if I'm Peter. All sorts of questions if I'm Peter. When? How? And, and, and what the people? What should I look out for? What will I say? Not Peter's question. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the, other, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, is, who is it that's going to betray you? So this is John again. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among, sorry, brought among the brothers that the, his, this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he, would not, he was not to die. But if it was my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so I love Peter. You can, you can feel the tension between Peter and John. Jesus is like, you're going to die by crucifixion. You failed in the past. You're going to succeed in the future. Peter's number one question. What about creepy John who's following us? What about, what, what, what about him? What, what about him that's following us from an earshot? What about him? I love Jesus' response. What's that to you? Like, what does it matter? Does that change anything of which I've just called you to? What if I want him to live? What if I want him to ascend to heaven? What if, what if that? It matters none to you. See, it's the problem when we get competitive and comparative in our relationship with God. What about them? What about them? What's, what's their story? Because truth be told, if I'm going to be crucified, then we should all be crucified. If i got to go to the cross, like you went to the cross, Jesus, then we should all have to go to the cross. If I have to be miserable, we should all be miserable. And Jesus, what's that to you? What, you? what do you care? What does that change anything in your obedience? And this is sort of how the book of John ends. Now, some things that I take away from this passage is one is that, th- that this, is not, this is not actually a passage about physical healing. Right? This is a passage about relational healing. And truth be told, I think it's what most of us need the most is relational healing. 
If, oh, if only the thing that ever ailed us was physical pain. But really, truth be told, the pain that trips us up the most is not often physical pain. The, trip, the thing that trips us up off the most is, is the relational pain, relational brokenness. And not only is God the God who heals and heals physical ailments, but more importantly than that, God is the God who heals relationships. He is the God who heals your relationship with him, who restores it. And he is the God who is healing relationships between his people. It's interesting with this story because when we have a broken relationship and we have the offending party and the party who is offended, right? So offending party, party who's offended. Who do we expect to initiate the reconciliation? The one that was the offender, right? It's their job. I didn't do anything. They did something. They said something. It's their job to come to me to initiate reconciliation. It's their job to come to me to heal the relationship. It's their job to make me breakfast. To call me ashore. To say, come on. If we're telling this story, you know what we want? We want Jesus in the boat, Peter on the shore, and says, Jesus, come here. I've made you breakfast. I want to serve you. I am sorry for everything that I've done. But that's not the story we get. We get the offended party is the one who is making the sacrifice, both on the cross, even here, is the one who is serving who is the one who is providing, who is the one who is initiating and offering reconciliation and healing of the relationship. This is troubling. And truth be told is we are offended and we keep waiting for the offending party to come and they never do. And yet we follow a Jesus who was the offended party, and he's the one who offers forgiveness, offers healing. He tells us in Romans that, that he died for us while we were still sinning. While we were still in outright rebellion, he was making the way for reconciliation of the relationship. And so, that's troubling. Another thing that I see in this story is that healing, relational healing, often includes helping other people. You love me? You know that I love you, Jesus. Good. Doesn't stop there. You notice that? He, you notice he doesn't give him three opportunities to say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. Now, now I can go. Like, I just, I want to make that clear. What does he say? Be my people. Tend to my sheep. Help other people bring them spiritual food, help them heal. There's something healing in the work in which we have been broken, healed, and restored. There's something healing and redemptive when we help others do the same. We go, yeah, I know what it's like. 
Peter. I, I picture Peter at some point in, w- talking with somebody that said, and he's like, yeah, well, I don't know what to do. Like, Jesus would never forgive me because uh, I denied him. I, did, I just denied him to a Roman, a Roman guard. I just denied him. Peter's like, I can top that. I denied him three times. And do you know what he told me? He asked me if I loved him. And he asked me if I loved him again. And he asked me if I loved him a third time. And I said, yes, all three times. And you know what he told me? Take care of his people. And I know that you have offended God and you have denied him, but what I'm going to ask you is, do you love him? I do. Then go feed the sheep. That's what he told me. You see, there's something healing when we help other people heal in the way in which we are healed. And what Jesus says is, I want you to go do that. The last thing I take away from this, this story of healing is that the words follow me may look different from the beginning and the end. And that's my personal journey. That's your journey. But the call for Jesus to follow him, although the words are the same, the actions are going to look different as your life goes and as your journey grows and as you grow in faith. Because the original follow me was just, just come and sit with me. And I'm going to teach you and you're going to learn. And I'm going to send you out. You're going to heal. And you're going to come back. But I just want you to follow me and sit at my feet. But then when we see in John 21 when he says follow me, it's not, it's not to the ascension where Jesus is going. The follow me is to the cross. The follow me is to death and to resurrection. Sorry, well, the resurrection one day. Death, death and crucifixion. And so the follow me looks differently. And that's, that's encouraging and discouraging at the same time, right? As, the, as your faith grows, as your relationship with God grows, as he continues to heal you and grow you, is that the call is the going to, at some level, remain the same, but change dramatically. The follow me that God has called me with looks differently now than it did when I was seven. You know, maybe it was just, when I was seven, just stop lying to your parents. Now I lie to them all the time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but now, right, it's different. The call is different. And that's the growth and the depth of the relationship with Jesus. And so I pray as, as we look at the story about healing, man, maybe, maybe you would be the initiator. I'm the offended party. Maybe you'd be the initiator. I didn't do anything. That's probably not true either, but maybe you would be the initiator. Maybe God is calling you in a way that he's healed you to help other people heal. The healing, and I love this, the healing does not stop with you. It's not, his termination point is not you because the termination point was not your glory. The termination has always been God's glory. And so when the healing terminates with us, we take the glory, we're happy to give God the glory, but we're taking the glory and we refuse to pass it on. And so maybe for you, this healing is that God has healed you in a way in which now is the time in which you're hearing God say you need to help other people heal in similar ways.
And for all of us, I think the call is the same and dramatically different, which is to follow him. And here's the, the, the weird thing is like, so my following him looks different than when I was younger. Your following him looks different than when you were younger. And even at the same place, my following is going to look different than your following. But the same as the, all the cases that we're to follow him. We're to follow him in, in all that he does. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word and the power of your word. I thank you for the places where you have healed me, the places where you are healing me. And the places you have yet to heal me. I pray that the healing would not stop with me. I pray that the healing would not stop with those in this room. But because you have called us to you, you have reconciled us to you. That you as the Son have reconciled us to the Father. And have healed and are healing that relationship. I pray that we would do the same. Pray that we would feed, we would tend. Pray that we would follow you. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to heal our relationship with you. It's a humbling thing to admit that we are broken people and needing of a healing that we cannot obtain ourselves. Jesus, we thank you that you as the offended party initiated it we thank you as the offended party were the one that made the sacrifices all of the sacrifices that made healing and restoration and reconciliation possible we thank you that you were the initiator we thank you that even in that you still served us and provided for us we love you we pray for these things in your name amen